Well, this morning I want us to look at a story in our series about uh, Christian fellowship um, where Jesus does a, a miracle and it's a miracle that you're very familiar with. When you hear this story, you go, oh, I know this story. I've heard this story. I got it. Hang in there with me for a minute. Because it's a, an account, it's a story that's accounted, uh, recounted in all four Gospels. And it's only one of two miracle stories that are done that way. One of them is this one. And the other one is the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. So this story has an important place in Christian literature and, and, and the story of Christ. Uh, and what we find is a story where Jesus' disciples, if you back up just a little bit, you remember he, he took his disciples and sent them out two by two, and they went around the country doing good things and miracles and amazing things. Well, this happens right on the heels of all those guys coming back to Jesus. So imagine you've been out doing ministry, doing activity, doing amazing things. You've been serving. You've been out there with folks. And you come back to Jesus, and he says, let's take a retreat. A retreat. Let's get aside for a little bit and relax and rejuvenate and renew ourselves. We might call it today a vacation. Let's go do something fun as a team. So with that in mind, look at what happens in the story. Look at verse 10 of Luke chapter 9. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now, most of us go, where's Bethsaida? Let me back up and give you the point for those of you who are outline filler-outers. Is that a word, filler-outers? Anyway, is that a retreat was planned. They planned a retreat. And so after all this time of intense ministry, intense service, intense going and going, Jesus says, hey, let's go take a retreat. Anybody with him? Let's go. Sounds good, huh? Jesus says, let's go somewhere and have a little relaxation. And now the center of the ministry that Jesus was leading at the time was primarily centered around the village of Capernaum. Uh, we saw it last week in our story last week. And uh, it's on the northwest corner, if you will, or northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And he says, let's go. And it was, that was the town of, hometown of Simon and Andrew, by the way, and probably some others. But, but with Jesus' popularity rising, he says, let's, let's take a break. Let's step back. Let's go out together. Let's hang out together. Let's have some fish. They always ate fish, y'all. Come on now. There's a sea there, right? So they had fish a lot. And let's just relax. We've seen people healed. We've seen demons cast out. We've seen lives changed. We've seen amazing things. And Jesus is like, this is cool. I don't know if he used the word cool, but you get the picture. He's excited about what God's doing in their lives. And so he says, let's go over to Bethsaida. You're going, well, what's important about Bethsaida? That's all, folks. What's important about Bethsaida is nothing. It's just a town. But it happened to be in the next administrative district for the Roman provinces. So it was just five or six miles down the road. It was a far enough away from everybody that is involved in where they're at at, at, at Capernaum. And, and we're going to head over there. And they're going to retreat. Good plan, right? Let's go on a retreat. Look at verse 11. When the crowds learned it, Learned what? Where Jesus was going. They followed him. And he welcomed them. And he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now, by definition, a retreat is a time to get away from crowds. 
Jesus' intention was to take his disciples, head over to Bethsaida, spend a few days rejuvenating, renewing, having some fish and all that kind of stuff, right? But the people heard about it. And what happened? They said, we want to be where he is. Now, we'd love to give them these great motives, right? They just think he's an amazing teacher and they want to hear more about God and all of that. But we know better than that because we've read the scriptures, right? And we know that some people did believe he was amazing. They did believe he was the son of God. They do want to hear his teaching. But many believed what? He, he, gets, he got free food. He can heal my, 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 my mother-in-law. Well, I guess that's a blessing, right? He can heal my mother-in-law. As he did for Simon. He, he can cast out demons. He can do amazing things. And so when the crowds heard it, they said, we're going to go get some more of that. And they go with him. And notice what Jesus does. He doesn't say, why are y'all here again? Y'all are always wanting more. He does what? He welcomes them. Isn't that a beautiful picture? When you come to Jesus, he'll welcome you. He has come on. And the thing is, is some came for good motives. Some came for bad motives. But it doesn't matter. Jesus and his disciples were headed on a retreat. The retreat's going to be interrupted. It's going to be delayed. Jesus' response was to welcome them, to heal them, to cure those who needed healing. Remember, one of Jesus' primary purposes was to care for the needs of the oppressed, both spiritual and physical. And his actions here are very consistent with what he's doing. So this crowd rallies to Jesus. They want to be with him. They want to hear him. They want to get free stuff. Let's just be honest, okay? They want to be with him. And Jesus welcomes them. So as the day begins to wear, look at verse 12. As the day begins to wear away, you know what the, when the day wears away means what? It's late, okay? And the 12 came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we got a problem. You didn't see that in the text, but that's what's going on. We have a problem. He said, they say to Jesus, uh, we don't have food here for them. They don't have food for them. They don't have provisions. They don't have a place to stay. We don't know what we're going to do with all these folks. We're going to find out in a minute. There's a lot, 5,000 men, not including women and children. It's a big crowd, okay? And they're in the middle of what we would consider nowhere. They're hanging out in Sims, okay? No offense if you live in Sims, but if you're going to feed 5,000 people in Sims, what do you got to do? You got to call Texarkana for help, right? Okay. You got to call New Boston for help. No problem. I'm not offended. I'm not offended. I think Sims is a beautiful place to live. Okay. Don't take it the wrong way. But you get the visual. Okay. There's nothing out there. All right. There's not a place for a restaurant. There's not a hotel nearby. There's sure not hotels for 5,000 men, right? We got a problem. We got a problem, Jesus. Send them away. Tell them to go to the surrounding villages. Go to the country. Find somewhere else to get what they need. Y'all with me? This is a desolate place. Now you're thinking, so they're in the middle of the desert. No, it was more like the rural parts of East Texas, small towns. That's the best visual I can give you is that they're in a small place. There's not a lot of stuff there. And Jesus says to them, but you give them something to eat. All right. Days fading. The 12 come and say, Jesus, we can't help them. The disciples are concerned. They're concerned for them, the people. They're concerned for them, themselves. But they forget one thing. Who's in the middle of the meeting? The great provider's there, isn't he? 
The one who can do a thousand miracles is right there. The one who can feed thousands, the one who can raise from the dead, the one who can set people free from demon possession, the one who can take care of every need in life and bring healing. And they go, well, get rid of them. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You give them something to eat. Jesus' solution was this. Step up and do what you're supposed to do. Uh-oh. Don't you hate when somebody calls you on it? They had just recently experienced God at work in their lives. They have just been out ministering to people all over the countryside and have seen miracle after miracle after miracle that they did, remember? And now they show up and here Jesus is and they go, "Uh, can you get rid of them? We don't have provisions. We can't take care of it. We don't know what to do. We can't help. So Jesus says, y'all take care of it. They don't take that as an answer, by the way, because they still have another excuse. Look at verse the second half of verse 13. They said, we ain't got much. That's a paraphrase if you didn't know that. It's not in the Greek, okay? We ain't got much, all right? We have no more than what? Five loaves and two fish. Even if those were massive fish, we got problems, right? And unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, is that what you want us to do? Because there are what? 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, uh, have them sit down in groups of about 50. Now, uh, Jesus, have you looked around? Do you know what's going on? Do you see all these people? Do you see the provisions we have? Do you see we don't have much? And instead of walking and acting by faith, these men do what we would call a human assessment. And they go, uh, but all we have is this. All we have is five loaves and two fishes. How are we going to meet this need? What are we going to do? And they go, well, I guess we could go down to Texarkana and buy some for everybody, right? They didn't say Texarkana, but go to the store and buy some food. They don't, we don't know what to do. And here we find there's a lot of folks there. And what they faced was perceived, get this, as an insurmountable problem. We can't fix this. We can't fix this. Hey, probably you were thinking to yourself, if I were in their shoes, I'd be saying, I can't fix it either. Guess what happens when you finally get to the place where you can't fix it? You finally begin to figure out what we're going to figure out real quick here is what? Jesus can. He can fix it. How's this going to work out? He says, y'all sit down in groups of 50s. Uh-oh. So look at verse 15. As they did so and had them all sit down, And taking the five loaves and two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the crowd. Now, I can imagine more than one disciple thinking to himself, okay, we got him seated. Did he get him seated so we have a chance to run away before they kill us? I wonder. Y'all realize the disciples were as human as we are, right? They had the thoughts that we had. They had the struggles that we had. They had the issues that we had. They had doubts, just like what? Like we do. And Jesus, why are you setting up for failure? I don't want to be a failure. I don't want to be a success. At this point, Jesus takes the five loaves, two fish, and he speaks a blessing over them. Now, he didn't pray our typical prayer we would pray. What he prayed is something more along the line of this. Thank you, God, for what you've already given us. What had God given them in that moment? Five loaves, two fish. Uh, okay, we're going, to be grateful. we're going to be grateful for what we got, not what we don't got. Are you with me? 
He says, I want to be grateful. We're going to be grateful to God. His resolution to the problem of feeding the people was to thank God for what he's already done. And so Jesus prays in faith and says, God, thank you for what you've given us, and let's start eating. Now, some have suggested, and I love reading theological scholarly writing because sometimes they are just the most asinine folks in the world. Anyway, I look at them and go, what? Some have suggested, oh, well, Jesus already prearranged to have a a stash of food there because he knew what was coming and he was going to take care of it for natural means. Probably not, okay? Others have said, oh, I think what happened is this, is is some of the disciples had left and gone and gotten some food during the interim here, and so they provided it from natural means. There's no way this could be a miracle. I'm here to tell you God's Word is full of miracles. I suspect this building is full of miracles, if we're honest, in our lives. Y'all with me? And so here's what he does. He says, God, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to thank you for what you've given us. I see him as God providing his riches according to his glory, and God's going to do something. And they're about to experience a miracle. A resolution was presented. Jesus said, here's what we're going to do. Now, that'd be pretty cool if the story stopped there. But there's one more verse I want you to see before we try to apply this real quickly. Look at verse 17. And some of them ate... Wait, wait, y'all with me? They what? They all, say it with me, all ate. And not only did they all eat, what they did, they got stuffed. Five loaves, two fishes, y'all with me? And were what? Satisfied. Now, were they stuffed? I don't know, but they were satisfied. They ate enough that they weren't hungry anymore, y'all with me? And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces, They didn't receive a mere morsel. Okay, here's your piece of fish. Good luck. They got to eat. Imagine the surprise of the apostles when they began to distribute the food and the baskets didn't go empty. Imagine their surprise when they said, Oh, I gave fish. I've been giving out fish for hours. Oh, my goodness. How can this be? You know who noticed this miracle? The only people who knew about this miracle were the disciples. The people out there didn't know what happened. The disciples knew... Something's up. God's at work. God's doing something this moment. And it was a moment when the followers of Jesus began to see that God was not only able to meet the needs of others, but also their need. What was their need? They were told, go collect leftovers. One scholar said, oh, that's because they were worried about the environment and they wanted to make sure it was clean before they left the place. See what I mean about scholars being kind of off base sometimes? You read them and kind of go, hmm, it's part of my humor for the week, by the way, to read some of them. He wasn't concerned about the environment. He cares about the environment. He wasn't concerned about trash. I think he cares about trash. Don't misunderstand. But it wasn't about recycling. It wasn't about living on leftovers. He wasn't going, well, we got to have leftovers for our team tomorrow because there won't be anything left tomorrow. We're going to starve tomorrow. That's not it. This is a moment when the disciples discover that God provides for their what? Every need. He takes care of them. And he had done it pressed down, shaken together, and what? Running over. There was plenty for everybody. They were shown that the amazing work of God not only gave what they needed, but what they needed to have as they walked by faith. And their experience knitted their hearts, and this is where we come back to our theme of fellowship. It knitted their hearts closer to God because they saw God at work in their lives and it knitted their hearts closer to each other. But he goes, look what God can do among us when we walk by faith. 
So how do we apply this? Three quick thoughts, and we'll get out of here before noon. There's no football today, so we're good to go, right? Number one, we need to come to the place where we acknowledge and accept that our natural abilities are simply inadequate. That's hard, isn't it? Well, I can do this. I can do this. I can accomplish that. Any of you got any talents? I know, because I know many of you. Y'all got talents. All, every one of you's got at least one. Some of you got a whole bunch. Some of you got somewhere in between. Everybody in this room has got some kind of talent, right? Some kind of ability, some kind of skill, some kind of gift that you have that you can go and do things. But I'm here to tell you this morning, we've got to come to the place where our, we understand that our natural abilities are simply inadequate. As they looked around the situation they don't, that day, what they see? A whole lot of folks. And they go, what are we going to do? We can't meet that need. Sometimes we, 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 we kind of give the disciples a hard time because they didn't have faith here. But I want to suggest maybe a little different slant on this. I think what they did was actually part of the solution. Because they came to the place where they said, we can't. And when I get to the point where I recognize I can't, where am I going to look for the I can? I'm going to look to the great I am in that moment. You know, with me? I'm going to start looking to God. They didn't see the possibilities, but the impossibilities. They didn't see what they could be done with God's power. They saw they couldn't do it. And, and you look at it and you think, oh, they, 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 what they really did is they got to the place where they said, okay, on my own, I can't do it. And it would be easy to say they lack faith. And maybe that's somewhat true, but I think the better way to look at this is to say, I can't do it, but now, God, you can. We need God to see him work in our lives. Jesus talked about this issue when he gives one of the most famous images of who we are in Christ. When he said this in John 15, he says, I am the vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do not much, nothing. We like to think we can do lots and we'll just do a lot of things. And we really finally get to the point where we can't handle it. Then we'll turn to God, right? And I think the solution is not to get to that point, but to start at that point. To say, God, I need you first. I need you to work. A key to walking in intimate fellowship with God and outflow of that is in an intimate fellowship with other believers is coming to the truth that I can do nothing apart from God. I cannot love you apart from God. I cannot encourage you apart from God. I cannot see the good works of God in you and in me apart from him. We think, well, I can handle this and this and this and this and this, and then we'll let God take over. No, we need to learn to take over, let God take over now and always. Instead of seeing the apostles as failing here, I think we can see it as they turned it over to God. And they said, God, we can't, but you can. And we need to do the same thing. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He said this. I don't think I put it on the screen. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, content with insults, content with hardships, content with persecutions, and content with calamities. For when I am weak, I'm strong. Our mindset is, when I'm strong, I'm good. And I'm here to challenge you to turn that around and say, God, I want to be weak in my power so you can move through me. And I believe with all of my heart that when we begin to live that way, the fellowship we have with the Lord will be growing and expanding because he's going to be leading us. And here's the crazy thing that goes along with that is our fellowship horizontally begins to work better because we're all listening to God's voice instead of our own little heads. And he's leading us. So our natural inabilities are inadequate. Second, this means we have to make a choice. We have to choose holy surrender over self-sufficiency. You're probably thinking, didn't you just talk about that? You know, I got up this morning and did a review of my notes I wrote this week, and I realized that the application on all three of these is almost exactly the same. Maybe it's something we need to hear. Or maybe I just didn't think very well when I was writing. I don't know. We'll see. The second application is this, is we have to choose between holy surrender and self-sufficiency. I'm here to tell you, that's the heart of us as humans. That's our problem. We're born with a bent towards sin. We're born with a rebellion toward God. We're born with a mind that says, I can do it. What's one of the first things our kids say? I can do it my own big self. Some of us are still saying that to God. I don't need your help, God. I can do it. I can handle this. I'm good. The apostles saw the need of the crowd. They needed what? Food and lodging. Their solution, very human solution, uh, y'all go away. Go away. Go away. Go over there. There's a store over there. Go get your own. There's a place down there. I hear Bethsaida's got a great market. Go down there. They got a supermarket down there. It's amazing. But Jesus called them to holy surrender. I, I think the apostles in the story got to the place where they had what I would call this crisis of belief. And it's something that all of us get to at points in life, don't we? We get to the place where we go, but, but I want to handle it. I want to do it. I want to do it. My own big self, God. And he says, well, you know what's crazy? He'll let you. He'll let you run down that road as long as you want to. He'll let you go down there and do all the crazy things you want to. Why? Because he gives you the free will to do that. How's that going for you? It never works out for me. Their recommendation was set them away. To the apostles, Jesus said, no, no, let's all sit down in 50s and let's go ahead and have a meal. And the disciples were probably going, he's setting us up for failure. I know it. We're going to look foolish. They're going to get the blame. We're going to get blamed for this. It didn't go well. See, God is better able to work through his followers who are fully surrendered to his holy plans for life. When we say, God, you are in charge, then life is better. I think the call here is simply this. Because the overall trajectory of our lives is significantly dependent on how we respond to God's call, we are called to continually and regularly and consistently choose holy surrender. Because how we live is determined by how we approach that. Listen to what Paul said to the church in Galatia. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. And get this, if you don't mind underlining, underlining your Bible, underline this next phrase. 
But Christ, who what? Lives in me. Some of you are going, how does that work? It's a process. And then he goes on and says this, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. May we be people who let Christ thrive in us because we are wholly surrendered to him. One more thought and I'll be done. Told you it's all the same thing over and over here. You ready? God uses daily yielded lives. I struggle with how to phrase that one. The thought here is that we need to yield to God on a regular basis every day. Have you ever heard of Henry Blackaby? Henry Blackaby wrote a book years ago called Experiencing God. If you've never had a chance to go through that study, I highly recommend it to you. One of the principles he puts in that book, it comes from Scripture, is this, is that God is always at work in the world. Do you realize that the God of the universe didn't just start us and go, good luck, see you later. He's always at work in the world with us. He walks alongside us. He talks to us. He's with us. He relates to us. He reaches out out to us. He calls to us. He's with us. He's always moving in order to bring about his perfect will in the lives of his people. Yet in order for him to move in mighty ways, we not only have to reject natural means and choose to surrender to him, but we have to choose daily to say, I'm yours and you're in charge. You're the boss. Much of modern Christianity, we have watered down to the place where we go, well, all you have to do, anytime you hear that, you kind of, kind of want to ask the question, all you have to do is come down an aisle and pray a prayer and get baptized and it's all done. Twenty-five years ago, I didn't walk down the aisle. I stood at the end of an aisle and waited for a beautiful young lady to walk down that aisle. And we said, we love each other. And we said, I do. And that was it. We're done. Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> I was done. But anyway, that's another story. What we've done in Christian faith in much of modern Western American Christianity is this. We've turned it into a transaction where we go, I go to the altar, I lay it at his feet, and I'm done. Churches across this land are full of people's names on their role who never darken the door of the church. They never want to have fellowship with the church again. Why is that? Now you're going to say, you're going to sound judgmental here. Yeah, part of, a big part of it is because they've had broken fellowship with others. They go, oh, I don't like her and I'm not going to be around her. He just rubs me the wrong way. I don't want to be around him. Some of you are thinking, I know him. I know her. They're right down the road from me. But when we really lay our lives at the foot of Jesus and we yield our lives daily, consistently and regularly to him, we can't help but love God, and we can't help, get this, but love each other. And then fellowship becomes deeper and broader and sweeter and greater and amazing. Often we look around and go, well, it's their fault I don't have a good relationship with them. Maybe it's us that we're not yielding our lives to God.
About halfway through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, he made this very bold declaration. He said, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within him, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever. Paul goes, I think I got it. God wants to work in our lives abundantly and amazingly and fantastically. And the way we get in on that is by surrendering daily to him. It all begins, though, with the first surrender. It does require us to make a step. In our culture, and our churches, we do that publicly. Why do we do that? Because we want to embarrass you and make you feel weird. No. We do it because it allows the rest of the fellowship to rejoice that God's at work in your life. And to say, look at what God's doing in their life. To be encouraged by that. It also encourages you as you make that commitment, whether it's to trust Christ for the first time or to make the commitment to become part of a fellowship officially, is you say, this is my place. These are my people. This is my tribe. So I want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. Maybe God's calling you to connect with him, first of all. Maybe he's calling you to connect because you're connected to him to a local body of believers. We'd love to have you a part of this fellowship. We're all messed up and flawed around here, I'm going to tell you. But God loves us, and we want to love each other through it all. Father, we thank you for loving us. We pray your blessing on these next few moments. God, I don't know what those who need to respond, who they are or what they're about, or if this is even the day they should. But, Father, my prayer is for those who do, you'd give us the faith to take the steps that we need to take. We pray your blessing on these next few moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.